0: Would you open your Bibles <laughs> to the book of... I don't even know how to get out of that. 2 Timothy chapter 1. <sighs> have you watched the news this week? <laughs> how many, uh, out of curiosity... Olivia, yeah, you have. I was, a, I was a news junkie, man. When I was a kid, we got... Uh, we had like three channels of cable. Anybody remember those days? We had the vice grip on the, to turn the knob and... Um, and one day, we went from three channels to, like, uh, five channels or, I don't know, ten channels. And one of them, we had WTBS Wrestling. and But we also had the news, CNN. And I would watch the news every morning. I was, like, fourth and fifth grade. And I didn't really think of that as weird uh, then. But now I look back going, man, my kids could care less about that at that age. But I was, like, every morning, I'd get up. I'd get up early, and I would watch CNN headline news and, and then uh, get ready for school. It was, uh, I was a weird kid. But... I'm, so I, to this day, I'm kind of a news junkie. You know, in my uh, office in the music industry for 10 years, I would ha- I, on the wall I had a TV and it was just on to CNN with the volume down all day long. So uh, that was just... But I, I'm fascinated by it. But I know that a lot of people are afraid of what's happening. So if you look on, whether it's social networking or you look on the television or you look on the Twitter or wh- wherever you're looking this week, there's a lot of confusion in the world, isn't there? And maybe a lot of fear. A lot of like, and parents, if you don't know this, your kids are on the Twitter, and I swear they're seeing this stuff already. So if you're not talking about it with them, they're seeing it. And I don't think that God has called us to put our head in the sand and to ignore it. And at the same time, I don't think he's called us to be running around like a bunch of chickens, uh, scared to death of stuff. So somewhere in the middle of that is where Jesus is. Out of curiosity, I would appreciate if if you'd raise your hands, because I would love to kind of get a read on where we are in the room. How many of you would say right now that I've got this all figured out, I'm looking at what's happening in Syria and in Lebanon and Iraq and Iran, I've got it all figured out and i got no questions? Showing of hands. How many, on the other hand, would say, I'm kind of confused and a little worried and scared? Right? And that's not, there's no shame in that. And I know there's people all along the spectrum in this. But, I felt, man, that the Lord would not have us to be afraid. And so to ignore an act like this didn't happen, isn't happening, is really not wise stewardship for us as a family. And what would the Lord say to us, conduit church, today, 2,000 years after his ascension and his promised return? What would he say to us? And it's probably not unlike what Paul would say to Timothy in Second uh, Timothy chapter 1 when he said, uh, verse 6, says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. And what reason is that, by the way? He says, I am reminded, verse 5, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Apparently, it was mama's family. Remember mama's family on the TV? My mother's name was Lois, by the way. (laughs) If you're from Iowa, I promise you've got a Eunice, a Bernice, or a Lois somewhere in your background. But for this reason, because God had put this faith in you. And so for that, I'm, I'm reminding you of this, of the, to fan into flame. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. And when he says fan into flame, you guys, are you kids, are you guys watching the, the dual survival or any one of these 150 different survival shows, right? And what do they have to do to get the, the fire going? They have to fan it. They got to blow on it. They got to breathe oxygen into it. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as the breath of the Spirit. So to breathe into this, to fan into flame... Through the Holy Spirit is what I believe the word of the Lord for us is. Through, uh, this gift which was in you that I, came into you through the laying on of my hands in verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. And I love this because, you know, there's a lot of this floating around. Oh, perfect love casts out fear. True. It did not cast out common sense, however. It does not cast out wisdom. Perfect love casts out fear, not wisdom. So those are not incongruent ideas. I can be wise and not fearful simultaneously. He says he didn't give us a spirit of power. He gave us a spirit of power. If what you're reading online, if what you're seeing on TV, kids especially, you guys, if you're seeing something and it's, all it's doing is making you anxious and it's confusing you, that's not. Jesus did not write that. If it makes you afraid, it makes you cower back. Jesus did not write that. That is, you can know, comes from another place. And in James, it tells us there's two sources of wisdom that comes from from Jesus from above, and those that come from demons. Those are your two options. So if it didn't come from heaven, it's come from hell. And the purpose is to give you a spirit of confusion, a spirit of fear, and a spirit of, of uh, cowardly, I have to hide. That's not what the Bible is promising us. That's not what the Holy Spirit has promised us. And I have such great news for us this morning. We do not have to cower back. By the way, Timothy is being written this letter, the last letter that Paul is ever going to write. Because he's in jail in Rome, and he's about to be executed. And he's writing to Timothy in that same culture, which resembles more of Syria than it does of Seattle, saying to these, you don't have to be afraid. God didn't give you a spirit of fear. And he goes on to say, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. I'm looking at a world right now, and I don't have to be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus what the world would want us to be right now, the mockers and the scoffers would be ashamed of this message. But he says, don't, we don't have to be because God didn't give us a spirit of fear. And because of that, I'm not ashamed. I don't have to be. Who saved us in verse 9 and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Oh, and thanks for that. Wow. Because if that were up to me and my works, I am cosmically hosed for eternity. But because it's not because of that. It's because of his own purpose and his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, we could go home just on that. You know, before the ages ever began, he knew you and he was calling you. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death. Comforting for a guy who's about to get his head cut off. Comforting because abolishing death had nothing to do with not dying. Defeating death is not, not dying, it's resurrection when I have been dead and then I'm not? Like that's, I have done kicked death in the teeth. And that's what he's saying. This guy is saying, he's, he has hope because he knows resurrection is coming. And in verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. In verse 12, for which I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Gang, he is able to entrust what he's put inside of us. And I wanted to start with that because what I'm about to tell you is a little bit of a, I'm going to give you a history. Would you want some clarity this morning, right? The perfect love doesn't cast out fear, but it also doesn't cast out wisdom. Some, some clarity. One of our, our elders' wives this week, and she didn't give me permission, so I won't give her name, but was talking to her husband about this, what's happening in the world. And she's like, I'm just, I don't even understand it. It's like, feels like the red Starbucks cup thing. Like, I, it might be an issue, but I don't know, and I don't have time to even figure it out. And that last line, I think is a line for all of us. I don't even have time to figure all this out. But, but congratulations, you're, you're sitting in front of a nerd who has spent my whole life. I've studied over the years, and not just in the scripture, but the geopolitical situation. And I want to bring you some clarity and this is, by the way, this will be a little bit of a chalk talk. I want to give you just a little bit of the history and how we got here and what's happening in the Middle East. That's going to be a short part of it. And then the question of, okay, if this is where we are, now what do we do about it? What is our... Can I talk? I've always wanted to answer one of those. Sorry. Um, it's okay. Hey, you're in the front row. That's where the glory comes out, so I'm okay with that. I just want to give you a little bit of a, a backstory about what it is, and then, but then where are we going with it? What are we going to do about this? How should we then live in a world that feels so complex? Does that feel okay? I want to make it simple as I can, and at the same time give us a little bit of an, a picture of what God is asking and expecting of us locally as well as globally. Is that okay? So if you're looking at the map of the Middle East right now, there's, a, there's a, a lot of mess going on, right? There's, it's, it's very complicated and it feels like, I don't understand it, whether it's Syria or where I I don't know. What was the Alan Jackson song? I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. Um, he sang the song of all of us. And by the way, you can find video readily available on the internet of our own politicians not long ago asking the difference between Sunni and Shia and none of them knew the difference. Which is why the Bible tells us, parenthetically, in Proverbs, do not put your hope in princes and in kings, for you will be uh, very sorely let down. And if you've lived a long enough life and voted in an election, you have lived long enough to have been let down by a prince or a king in our thing, right? so In the Middle East, right now, this is what, by the way, the Middle East is uh, the way it looks in today. Those are countries that we would consider the Middle East. By the way, Asia, on over to India is where Asia starts, if you wanted a geography lesson. But in the middle of all that, in the middle of Syria and Iraq is what's been on the news the most lately, is a religion called Islam that seems to be at war with you, but it also seems to be at war with each other. And I don't understand that, right? That's a question of how is that even possible? And to get to here, we have to go back to where it started. And again, if you're not a history nerd, whatever, you can go to sleep and I'll wake you up when we get past this, but it won't be that long. I would encourage you, though, to... To, to listen, because if you understand this, you're going to understand more than most of our politicians understand, and you can understand exactly the problem that faces the world and why Jesus is the only answer, not just a answer. This started back in the 7th century. okay, 1,400 years ago, a man named Muhammad has a dream. He has a visitation from an angel. Now, initially, that vision and that that thing hits him, his wife says, that's an angel, he thinks it's a demon. He thinks this is a demonic, that's actually in the writings, like that's an actual thing that he said, I thought it was a demon, but then my wife told me, and from that was born a religion that we know as Islam. And in the first 10 years or so, it wasn't that successful. Um, Barely 130 people that were part of Islam in that first decade. But by 622... He sets up a nation state in what's called Medina, which is where modern day Saudi Arabia is right now. And you guys know Saudi Arabia from the news, right? You've, if you didn't, you filled up your gas at some point with you, So you know Saudi Arabia, whether you know it or not. He sets up a nation state, and that religion grows from 130 to tens of thousands almost overnight. And from there, now Islam is the the, the Quran that, that, that he has written is now commanding them to go and to take over the world. Parenthetically, whenever you hear somebody say that I have had a vision that supersedes scripture, when I have an understanding that scripture didn't get but now I get it, in America, we're calling that progressive Christianity, it's also called Mormonism, it's also called Islam. Where somebody had a vision, had an idea that the scriptures did that, that I have now, something that overwrites what scripture says because I have a new vision, a new thing. And if it's new, it's not true. And in 7th century, a few hundred years after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, a man named Muhammad has a new vision, that he gets it better than the Apostle Paul, that he gets it better. And so Islam is born. Now, unfortunately, like all false prophets, he gets dead. That's why you can go find the grave of Muhammad or Buddha, but Jesus, it's empty because he didn't stay dead, and my money is on the guy that defeated Death, right? So he gets dead, and now there's like a good church split. Well, who gets to be over? That's why we have First Baptist and Second Baptist and Presbyterians and Unitarians, whatever, because there's a split happening in this faith just a few years after it started. And in that split, when he dies, there's no successor, and so they figure out who's going to be in charge of this religion. And it splits into two parts. Now in these two parts today, we know as Sunni and Shia, there are also subsets, the Alawites, the Wasabi, the Houthis, all these things you hear on the news are subsets of two different sides of Islam. And on one side is Abu Bakr. Now you might recognize that name because there's a guy in Iraq or in Syria now who says he's in charge to set up the caliphate. Uh, in charge of ISIS, whose name is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He wasn't born with that name. His his given name was Ibrahim, but he changed it to Abu Bakr. And now you know why. (laughs) It's like somebody changing their name to Jesus and saying, I'm taking over on our side. He has changed his name to Abu Bakr because it meant something to them. Because in their original uh, caliphate, so to speak, they chose a guy named Abu Bakr, who was a close, trusted advisor to Mohammed. And on that side, which we know as Sunni, they say to the, the, uh, the successor to uh, Muhammad after that would be someone that was chosen, much like we would choose, uh, uh, Americans would choose the Pope, or I guess the world would choose the Pope. He's chosen, and then, you know, the, the smoke comes out. You know, you've seen that on the news. And then they know who the Pope is. But on the other side was a guy named Ali, who was his son-in-law and cousin. And no, this did not happen in Arkansas. He was... Now, look, I got no rocks to throw at Arkansas. I was, raised in, I was raised in Nebraska, okay? Ali was the son-in-law. He was a blood relation because he was a cousin. And on that side, on the Ali side, they said that it has to be a blood descendant of Muhammad, okay? So on one side, we're going to choose him. We're going to be the guy. We're going to like the pope. We're going to roll him out, and he's the new guy. And on the other side, it has to be someone in the bloodline of Muhammad. Of of Ali. Now, what happened in 656 AD was that in the early stages, this was, hey, it was like First Baptist and Second Baptist until First Baptist killed the pastor of Second Baptist, okay? They're fighting now. Like the, the followers of Ali killed the caliph or the pope, whatever you want to call it, that succeeded Abu Bakr, and that was, of course, frowned upon. And so They on their side, uh, the Abu Bakr people kill the guy who's from uh, the Ali side, and before you know it, there is a split in Islam that exists, a schism that is not a schism but a chasm, a canyon in a religion that exists to this day. And so, when you look and you hear the news of what's happening, a Sunni-Shia thing, understand that most of the time they don't. I don't think personally understand what a religion can do inside of someone's heart and how hard it is to talk somebody out of something that they believe so wholeheartedly. Which, by the way, is why I love that Jesus gave us 11 disciples who all saw him died for the the cause of faith because they didn't die believing in a dream. They died believing in a reality. And if I would have believed and I hadn't seen Jesus resurrect and someone was getting ready to saw me in half sideways, I'd have sung like a canary because I would have known that I was dying for a lie. We have such faith in that. We have such faith because a guy named Paul, who would have been like the Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of that time, gave his life to Christ and gave his life for Christ. Those kinds of miracles don't happen every day. But in Islam, right now we have men and women who believe in either one or two sides of, of Islam. And if you look at the map of the world, the Shiite Muslims and the Sunni Muslims divided out Shiite makes up about 10 to 15 percent of the world. Sunni is 90, 85 to 90 percent. The vast majority, if you have a neighbor that lives next to you who's Muslim, if you have somebody you know at the grocery store, or whatever, most likely they're going to be from a Sunni background. But there are exceptions to that. One of our families here lives next door to a guy from Syria, and if you look there, Syria is a vast majority of it is considered a Shiite. Um, that specifically is uh, well. We we'll know this percentage later. So why does this matter? What what does it matter in our lives? If you look at what's happening in our world right now, and you think Shia, you think Abbas of Syria, Ayatollah in Iran, Maliki in Iraq, or you might have heard of these organizations, Hezbollah or Houthis. They are all they are Shia Islam, and they are by the way, the, especially when you look to the extreme corners of these religions which if 1.5 billion of the world are Muslim and only just, let's say, 10% are radically Islam, which is a very conservative number, that's 150 million who would consider themselves radical Islam. And on that side is Shia, which is the smallest percentage, but it makes up Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. It's a big swath right through the middle of the Middle East. And on the Sunni side is al-Qaeda. Remember them? in Africa, that's in the news just this week. Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, those would be ones, 19 uh, hijackers were all Sunni. Most of them from Saudi Arabia, a Sunni country. Have I lost anybody yet? Raise your hand if I did. It's okay, it's, don't be embarrassed. I'm telling you, you're, I'm a nerd. I can get nerded out in this in a hurry, but okay. Shia and Sunni both are competing with one uh, with one end in mind uh, i've heard him called a death cult that's probably pretty accurate because what they believe is that on the sunni side they believe that jesus by the way i don't know if you know this but in the hadith which is like the second in the trilogy of the quran they actually believe jesus is going to return but they believe he's coming as the ultimate muslim who will kill the christians kill the jews kill any of the infidels and then himself die as the ultimate Muslim to set up their, what they call caliphate, it's the perversion of what Jesus promised, the millennial kingdom, his kingdom come, his will be done. The perverted side is that Allah will be here, Muhammad will return, Jesus will die, because he's not God, he's just a prophet. And they believe that their, when they say caliphate, what they mean is a nation state that rules the world from uh, an Islamic perspective. That's on the Sunni side. On the Shia side, they believe in the 12th Imam. Have you heard that phrase? Remember in the, uh, a few years back, President Ahmadinejad from Iran would get into the UN and he would pray for the hastening of the return of the 12th Imam. The 12th Imam came from a few centuries earlier in the succession Uh, A young man who was five years old prayed at the death of his father and he was supposed to be the successor, the bloodline successor, and he goes back into his home and he disappears and hasn't been seen since. He would have been the 12th imam, which means the 12th person in line, like the 12th pope, I don't know how how else to say it for our language, in line, and he's disappeared, and so they're waiting for him to return. Both sides, Shia and Sunni, they hate each other because their competing views of eschatology. They are a end times, whack job, David Koresh cult. And they believe that they can hasten the return of their guy. the ISIS, do they have a death wish? Yes. That's why this little ragtag group of radicals is taking on the world without fail. There's a reason why they bombed Russia and America and killed a Chinese guy because they're trying to provoke a war that is predicted by their Hadith scriptures. Them against the world. And the reason it's important for us to know this is because I have a tendency, I have a temptation to want our government to solve this problem. I want them to figure it out. I want them to do what my grandpa says to do. Just put them all on an island and blow them the heck up. It was his solution for pretty much everything. (laughs) He survived a couple of tours in Vietnam, so he was allowed to say a lot of crazy stuff at Thanksgiving. I want the government to do something about it. But look what the government has got to do right now, which is figure out in Syria, which is Assad, who is a, a Shiite president, who is being attacked by an ISIS, which is a Sunni nation. That's why Iran is in there because they want to protect their Shia brother, Assad. That's why Iraq was so complicated. Because we thought, our government thought, hey, we just made you a new country, and to get everybody together and sing Kumbaya, we'll give you a Shia president and a Sunni vice president. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni president in charge of a primarily Shia nation. That's why Iran and Iraq were at war for over a decade, because they were trying to remove their Sunni oppressor to let their Shia people be free. And so we go in there, and we say, oh, we'll have a a Shia president and a Sunni vice president, and we'll all just get along, which worked until they put a death warrant out for the vice president, and he is now in hiding in Turkey, because the Shia people were not interested in that, because it competes with their extreme version of eschatology which is a not not a uh, but a literal Shia uh, Islam state. And so what happened in the war was by putting a Shia president in charge now Iraq and Iran stand in solidarity together something they hadn't done in decades because it's Shia all the way across to Syria and to Lebanon and right up to the borders of Israel. You heard the word Levant on the TV. You wonder, why why does, why does Obama say ISIL and everybody else says ISIS? It's not as complicated as it sounds. The word that they use in the uh, in Arab is not a word that we really have a word for. Levant is a word almost like, you know, the Orient, you think of the, it's like a, a, an antique word. It's a word that they don't have in Arab language. It's, but it speaks, the Levant speaks of that territory. And we bust his chops because why doesn't he say ISIS or ISIL, but in fact that actually speaks of their ultimate goal so when you think of Iraq uh, and uh, the Islamic in uh, Iraq and Syria that's what ISIS stands for the Levant speaks more of what their true goal is which is uh, that area Israel included this is their prelude this is the trailer for the movie now have I scared you good because it shouldn't be what I'm trying to tell you is that our government can't fix that. That's why we keep tripping over ourselves in the Middle East. Because when it's a Shia cult versus a Sunni cult, who do you pick when it's bad guy versus bad guy? How do- There's a reason why Jesus is coming back. There's a reason why he's going to set up his kingdom. The reason he's going to put his literal foot on a literal mount and split it in half and set up a government. It says the government will be on his shoulders because you and I, thousands of years of governing, if there's one thing we can say with absolute certainty is we can't figure this out. That only Jesus can. And I have such a great hope that a literal Jesus is coming to a literal earth to put a literal kingdom in place, and the, the lion will lay down with the lamb, all those metaphor scriptures. I believe in all of that. I truly do. But what do we do until then? How do you and I live? He gives us a clue, he gives us a command, he gives us something to work on in Luke 19 when he speaks in this parable when he says that uh, a a king uh, had gone off to a foreign land and he was coming back. But until then, he says in Luke 19, occupy until I come. So I don't have to get wigged out over this. Also, I don't have to ignore this. What we get to do is occupy until he comes. How many of you have taught a teenager to drive? God bless all of you, every one of you. My wife has been... Uh, how many of you have taught them on Arno Road, by the way? Anyone? Wow. That's one of the things about moving out in the country is eventually your kid's going to have to drive you home. I was telling Ashley this week, our 15-year-old, when we're driving, she gets kind of panicked. You know, she's got, like, super up close and, like, this, you know, driving the whole time. And I'm like, Ash, first of all, thank you for, you know, driving so attentively. But as long as you stay in your lane, we're fine. That's, the, that's pretty much sums up driving. When you're on a two-lane road, just stay in this lane, and he'll stay in that lane, and we're good. It's when I get out of my lane that I'm crashing into somebody. It's when I go off the road this way, get off the rails, I end up in a ditch. Just stay in your lane. And when I say, what do we do? My question is really, who is the we we're talking about? Which lane are we in? The scriptures speak to Government, what their role is, Romans 13, 2 Peter 3. There's overwhelming scriptural that God uses nations for his purposes. And while I don't understand on the the ground game, I can look up from the, the up and say, Jesus got this under control. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So even when it looks nutty and crazy, God can still get in the middle of that and make good come from it. It's just the way he does. His purposes are all beings, and he is not off the throne. He's not freaked out. All the evil that these men are doing, there will be justice. That's a whole other sermon. But for us, what do we do? What is the lane that God has called us into? And when I say us, I'm not talking about the church as a whole, even though that is a question. I'm just not in charge of that. I'm in charge of this church. What are we going to do? What is conduit going to do about this. And the answer is, we're going to do what we've been doing. We're not shrinking back. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He didn't give us a spirit of meekness. In fact, if you go to your Bibles to the book of Acts 2.42, I want to tell you that I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because I just like the way it felt. But it's so much truth in this. Here's what we're going to do. The world, the government can't solve this. Jesus is coming back. The, the reason it's hopeless is because it is, unless Jesus fixes it. And the good news is, is if you believe in Jesus, the one that resurrected from the dead, that promised, he fulfilled 300 prophecies that all promised he was going to be here. Do you think for just a moment that he's going to not fulfill this one? He's coming. It's going to be awesome. But he says in Acts, uh, 242, they're describing what the early church, which lived in an environment much like the Middle East was in today, that what they did was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. And gang, as a church, when I think back to what God has done through us in 2015, and I'm going to throw up a slide in a minute to show you what he's done. I believe he's done it not because of some master plan or because of some marketing campaign, but because we have been doing what we knew to do, which was to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We are devoted to the word of God. And when I think to what God can do in this environment with us, we have to be, what did Paul say, to to protect, to guard that thing that was in you, this gift. This is our, when we don't have this, we get crazy things because someone now says, oh I got a better idea. They didn't this is the best they could understand at that time. And so we have a better idea, I had a visitation, I just feel better about this. That's what brought the world Buddhism and Islam and Mormonism and halfway in betweenism. This is our our supernatural communication from our heavenly Father. And as a church, what are we going to do in the next year? I want us to double down on discipleship, life on life in the word, daily, together, individually. We're making plans right now to knock this back wall down. And why are we going to do that? Because it allows us to get up to 250 chairs in here. Because when we're not on Thanksgiving, this gets a little full in one service. It's untenable. But knocking that wall down, we get 250 chairs in here. And you know what that means? One service. Hallelujah. But you know what it really means? Is now we have another opportunity on a Sunday morning to come together. They used to call it Sunday school. But coming together in small groups, maybe there's a group that's devoted to prayer. Maybe there's a group devoted, people who have a passion. Robin has a passion for the word. People have a passion to teach the word. People, we come together and devote ourselves to prayer, to fellowship, to teaching, to breaking of bread, Often. We have an opportunity to do that here, and we're going to do that. That means, by the way, just for those who are ready to get charismatic, uh, new chairs and new carpeting, because we, we might as well. We're knocking it down. Might as well do the whole thing. But it gives us an opportunity now on Sundays to get together. Because think about it. Everybody, we love small groups. I love community, but I have four kids. They eat every day, multiple times a day, which means I have to have a job. You have to have a job. We got school. We got, and it's just really difficult for us to connect in a small group environment throughout the week. So what if we just said, okay, Great, we'll do it on Sunday mornings. Maybe our grandparents knew something. We're going to be devoted to his teaching, doubling down on that. What is Untangled for? It's for us to double down on discipleship. What is the scripture? We know what the media says about sexuality. We know what the media says about money. What does the word say about it? So we have a foundation in a time that we're going to need a foundation more than ever. Our kids are going to need it more than ever. We're going to be devoted to fellowship. Now that word fellowship is the word koinonia. Which you've heard before, especially if you grew up around the 70s or 80s, every Christian coffee shop this side of the Mississippi was called the koinonia house. But that word fellowship is a word that Paul would say in speaking in Romans 15... 26, he talked about this gift that pleased them. Remember the Macedonia thing I talked about a few minutes ago, that church in Macedonia? It pleased them to make a certain contribution for the poor saints who are at Jerusalem. And that word contribution was the word koinonia, our fellowship. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, in speaking of this contribution, he was sharing his fellowship with them. When we bought a truck for Pastor William in Togo, Africa, we were sharing our koinonia with him, our fellowship. And if you look in verses 43, 44, 45, 46, 47 of Acts 2, you see fellowship in action. They were sharing with each other as they had need. You know what we're sharing this week? Like right now, am I allowed to say that uh, Ryan and Sarah uh, might be, they might be initiating the launch code. Uh, right now for a baby, okay? Um, we have 10 mamas about to, uh, within the next six months, about to uh, give birth. You guys are being fruitful and multiplying. Good. But sharing in that, just a couple of weeks ago, my wife and Kathy Holton and Don Trent were over here making freezer meals all at once, So we didn't overwhelm the church as a whole. We got like 40 or 50 freezer meals sitting in the kitchen right now, ready for these mamas to have babies. We're trying to be proactive in fellowshipping with each other. So when you guys, we don't have to just make an Arby's run for the Redmonds. We can actually have meals for you in fellowshipping. Unless you want Arby's, and that's up to you. Yep. Well, you're pregnant. You're like, like whatever you want when you're pregnant. We want to, on a practical level, fellowship with each other. And you guys, you've done such a good job of that. But you know how it gets even deeper is when we untangle ourselves and free up some time in our lives, free up resources in our lives, so that we have time to make, to spend with each other in fellowship with here and around the world. That means communion here. It means breaking bread together. You know if you've been around here, we love a good cookout. But I know some of you are having meals together in your homes, not because we told you to, but just because that's what you do. That's fellowship I want us to be so bad devoted to that. And I think that the one thing that we have dabbled in, we have danced up against, we have fiddled around with, but I don't know that we have been devoted to as a church family, in just all honesty, is prayer. And I want us to be devoted to that separately individually corporately maybe the nine o'clock uh there's a there's a room that is just a prayer room maybe there we i don't i whatever the lord is leading but just know that i want you to be praying i'm going to be praying we're going to be praying together in big groups and small groups there's no better way to have a really bad turnout than to say it's prayer night it's just true and if you throw persecuted church and they're like ain't nobody showing up it's just the way it's always been it's not a, a knock on you that's just how our society works and it's just, but if we're doing it on a Sunday, we're already here. I think it w- awakens that inside. I just want us to be devoted to that. Because you know what I really want is I want to see verses 43, 44. I want to see signs and wonders and people being added to the Lord's, uh, number, added by the Lord daily, those that are being saved, you guys being generous. And by the way, when you go overseas and you're standing in the middle of an Islamic country and say that Allah is not God, Jesus is, you know what's awesome? When someone gets out of a wheelchair. And that happens regularly. I have friends that go into Pakistan and India. I can't say their names. But when they say that Allah is God and the village blind guy now sees, let me tell you what happens to Islamic people. They suddenly see that maybe Jesus is away. We're going to double down on discipleship in our youth here. We're going to double down on discipleship around the world. And I wanted to share this with you because this is where we've been this past year. Morocco, Lebanon, Togo, Uganda, Nepal, Philippines. That is part of what's called the 1040 window. where the vast majority of the unreached people groups of the world exist right now. And so what we are doing as a church, what we have done this past year, is invested over 300,000. I'm giving you a conservative estimate because we haven't done the actual pennies and dimes and nickels. But over $300,000 this year have been spent in Morocco. A primary Muslim nation, Mark and Dana, who were here, we sent them out with $23,000 that they're investing in sending Muslims into the other parts of Morocco to bring Jesus to them. You know what's awesome in a place like Togo? Is when you stand in a village, you drive for 15 hours past mosque after mosque after mosque, and you plant a church that's feeding the children, clothing them, comforting them, bringing medical care, which is in the same place where the mosque was that wasn't doing any of that. I've seen it in Indonesia. I've seen it in India. A mosque planted right next to where a Compassion International Post is. And let me tell you who's feeding the hungry children in that community, the Christians. That's why James would say that true love, true religion is feeding orphans and widows taking care of them. That's when Jesus said it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, or Paul said that in Romans. That's what he's talking about. We're going to double down on that globally. It's 300,000, and by the way, that's just what the Lord did. I don't get to take credit for it. It's us and other churches partnering together, other believers around the country coming together, all that money is is just a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit because we're not about social justice. Then you get a free sandwich but no Jesus and that means there's no hope. We want the right and the left, wait, the right and the left hand of God (laughs) coming together to bring Jesus to the world. And here locally, my prayer is that, the Lord is going to add to our numbers daily here as well. We don't keep spreadsheets because I'm shallow enough that I would trumpet them every week and say we've had 14.3 people saved this week. And, you know. But suffice it to say that there have been thousands around the world saved, baptized, becoming and made disciples through conduit. I want to see that here too. And I believe we can. I believe we can through investing in our brothers and sisters in first priority. You know that Benny's making a movie, but you know what he does better than making movies? Making disciples. Right now in America, there are, I sat in a board meeting Friday morning with Benny and the rest of the board for uh, first priority. Right in America alone are 10,000 schools that have student-led discipleship clubs that are based in scripture, that are based in the teachings of Jesus based on the idea that God's Word, the Bible, is our uh, communication from Him. And we are launching that around the world in Uganda and Kenya. He's got a strategy that works everywhere. Because it's about disciples making disciples. We're going to double down with that even on our own students here locally. We're going to continue to send teams around the world. This year we had 140 people go on mission trips with Conduit. Maybe it's 150 next year, maybe it's 200. But we're going to, not about the numbers, but we're going to keep going and sending Bucky and Kim just came back from Haiti with us. They're actually getting ready. I better not say that. Can I say that? They're getting ready to move to work for a mission organization. Maybe not move, but they're going to work for a mission organization that tells the stories of people being saved around the world. He's going to be the media guy there to tell these stories. We get a chance to invest in missionaries like Bucky and Kim, Glenda and Andrew Basher up in Canada. Uh, right now, part of the Conduit family teaching the natives about Jesus, working disaster relief along Samaritan's Purse. we got Rob and Amanda Juilliard in Guatemala making disciples. Most of you don't even know Sam Briswela, a young man in Guatemala who works alongside of them, making disciples. Gang, that's, here's what we got to do. If you want to make a difference in the world, make disciples. Because you know what makes a difference? are people, Jesus-loving disciples. Not just believers, there's a lot of believers. Even Satan believes. I'm talking disciples. You know what a disciple is? Someone who acts like Jesus. And we get an opportunity to start right here, this little 13,000 square feet. I don't know why God gave us 11 acres, but I think we're going to find out. Because my question is, for us here locally, this little ragtag group of Jesus followers, how can we make disciples that make disciples? And that doesn't mean everybody has to go, but everybody gets to play a part You get to play a part teaching our children. Maybe that's what God is asking you to do this year, is to lean forward with our own students to say, I mean, on any given week, Jim and Donna are short on help with people that are there because they are passionate about wanting to be there. On any given Sunday, Mo is back there going, I'm really short on help this week. Maybe this is the year where we're leaning forward and saying, you know what? One Sunday a month, I'm okay to go and to teach and to make disciples 10 feet down the hallway. I don't want it to be hard to rest here, but I do want it to be hard to sit still here, to, uh, there's a word I don't want to use. We don't have to be afraid. We are not given a spirit of fear, but power of love and a sound mind. And as conduit, I pray that by this time next year, that we are known as an outpost for the kingdom of brothers and sisters who are grounded in the word, who are devoted to each other, loving each other well in fellowship and in prayer and in the apostles' teaching and the word of God in breaking bread, that we as a body of believers are known If whatever else we're known for in this community, that we're known for that. We're not shrinking back. We're gonna charge this hill until his he comes, sets up his kingdom. We're occupying it. We're setting out outposts of the kingdom right here, right now. Would you stand with me? I don't know if you know this, but this week, over a thousand people were in this building. Homeschool cooperatives. Kelly Savage is the leader of a ragtag bunch of discipling. And on Mondays, 100 and some kids, I don't know how many, a, a, a couple hundred with the moms are here on Mondays. Moms and dads discipling their own children right here, bringing it up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I don't have to do anything. We just let them do what the Lord has put on their heart. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, Carol's grandkids are in here, the family of, with West Harpeth. Last night, Friday night, they had uh, their own little play production and what packed out, you know, into the parking lot, telling the story of Jesus by young men and women who are being discipled by their own parents. We have the Bible Bowl on Thursday afternoons, where young men like the Rojas men here, who just won the uh, what did you win? Second round. What did you have to do to win that tournament? What did you have to recite? Memorize, put that in your pipe and smoke it, the first eight chapters of Luke. I, I don't have none chapters of Luke memorized, but, but in our building, that's happening right now. On Wednesdays, the classical conversations, it's the little peanuts being raised up by their mamas and daddies and teaching them the word of God. And that's happening without us doing anything other than letting this building be used for an outpost for the kingdom of God. That's already happening. And it's our honor and it's our privilege. And don't get me wrong, it gets frustrating. Keith is up here this morning trying to fix and find wires and there's stuff knocked off from the... The the building gets damaged. That's going to happen. And it's frustrating, but then we can remember, oh, but there was kingdom work going on here. And that's okay. That's okay. Gang, this year, pray, man, pray that the Lord would speak into your hearts. It's not my goal to try to figure out how to feed 1,000 kids in Haiti, even though there's 600. My hope is to find 1,000 people that'll feed 1,000 children in Haiti. To spread that way, to plant churches and plant other ideas and that God awakens the possibilities just like he did in Bucky and Kim, maybe in you as well. What do we say? You can be goers or you can be senders. You can be both or either, but you can't be neither. Not in this kingdom. There are no benchwarmers in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, would you give us courage to face this world that we're in, to to, to not shrink back, to not be ashamed, to take those words that Paul wrote to Timothy seriously and passionately. I'm in a room full of world changers, Lord. I know whether it's in the media, or in uh, orphanages, or in discipleship. I'm in a room full of room changers, world changers right now, because I'm in a room full of disciples. And God, I pray that you would bring more disciples, that we would be making more disciples, that we would occupy until you come. Oh, it's our hope, Lord, to stand and to look you in the eye and for you to say those words, well done, well done. Give us wisdom. We, we, we're going to need provision. We're going to need direction. We're going to need patience. We're going to need you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.